Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is sponsored by Michael Carlin's latest novel, The Ruin of Souls. If you like books about gladiators, then this isn't the book for you. But if you can appreciate a good mystery, jaw-dropping plot twists, and a generous pour of espionage, then The Ruin of Souls should be on your summer reading list. You can buy The Ruin of Souls in ebook or paperback format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, and welcome to Uncorking a Story, where we excavate the stories behind the stories. And yes, yes, I said excavate, likely because I watched an Indiana Jones movie this past weekend, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I am a sucker for most of those Indiana Jones movies. And like the old knight says at the end of the movie, you have chosen wisely to tune into this episode. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, today. I say you've chosen wisely because I have a fun and informative conversation with eight-time novelist and master of historical fiction, Christina Baker Klein, about her latest work, The Exiles. But more on that in a minute. There's a few things that Christina brought up in our conversation that got me thinking, and that's sometimes a dangerous thing when I when I get to thinking. But the first is this. You know, she mentioned how all kids are born with some kind of creativity. They draw, they paint, they dance, they sing, they perform, all without you know much of any provocation on the part of adults. But somewhere along the lines, and if you have kids, I'm sure, I'm not sure, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you may have seen this um, in your own life. You know, somewhere along the way, something tragic happens, you know, and, and that is um, the light that was there kind of goes out a bit. And, and, and I'll be honest, I see it in my own kids. I have triplets. For those of you who've listened to this before, you know, I have triplets. They're 19 now, uh, two girls and a boy. And, you know, I could, I could decorate my entire house with all of the canvases that they painted, you know, bet- between being in preschool and then during, you know, grammar school. But, but they're 19 now, as I mentioned, and, and I don't get any artwork anymore. You know, and one of my girls, you know, Gracie specifically, is an extremely extremely talented artist. And, and these days though, when I catch her sketching, you know, and I ask what she's doing, she like hides it up. She covers it up. You know, she doesn't want to share it with me. Um, you know, the kids would randomly just burst out into doing shows for the adults, you know? And, and yeah, I guess that would be kind of weird now at 19 to have your like adult kids put on a little show after dinner. 
Um, but you know, something happens and, and Christina and I actually, we, we talk about this dynamic and, and we come to the conclusion that it's really fear of vulnerability that sort of puts, puts roadblocks in front of us, you know, to, to express our creativity. And isn't that sad? You know, I, I wish I could have nipped that in the bud somehow, you know, because, you know, while, while fear comes with, with being vulnerable, we often don't realize that, that there's a freedom that can come with that as well. I just want to dig into that a little bit. Uh, I was in an Uber this week, and um, as I'm apt to do, I struck up a conversation with the driver. The, the trip was going to take about an hour. And, you know, he had a, he had a playlist going. And there was a song that came on and I asked him, I'm like, hey, is this is this Santana? You know, it was like a Santana song from the late 60s, early 70s. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, and uh, and he, then he admitted to me like a little a little I don't want to call it a trick, but a little tactic he uses to, you know, to 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 start conversations with people who he drives. And, and he basically he sizes up who they are based on how they look. I know that sounds terrible. Um, and, and, you know, uh, in a way maybe, maybe it is, but, but in this situation it worked, you know? So, so he put on the, uh, 46 year old white guy playlist and, uh, and it worked because I started asking him questions about, about that song. And then we talked about the other artists who were, who were coming up on the, or who were being played on the playlist. And, um, I found it to be a great way to, to break the ice and, and build rapport, even though it involves some kind of profiling. And look, I'm sure the guy's not right 100% of the time. But in this case, all I can say is it worked. But as we continued our drive, he opened up to me that, you know, he's been driving with Uber for about five years. And and more recently, he found it to be a therapeutic experience. And And look, I'm an uncorker of stories. I had to dig a little deeper into what he meant by that. And he told me, he shared with me, that uh, in the spring of 2020, right after George Floyd um, was killed, uh, Chicago had erupted into into violence. um, And his son was a victim of that violence. And he told me that, you know, um, as a black man, he was taught his entire life not to bring his personal issues to anybody, not to make his problems anyone else's problems. You know, he told me that culturally they were his to deal with and and his alone. But as time went by and, you know, he realized that sort of keeping all these emotions he was experiencing as a result of the loss of his son inside, you know, he realized he, um, you know, needed to, to share this. And he started talking to his riders about his experience. And he told me that something really interesting happened. You know, his riders started sharing with him their experiences. And, and, and sometimes, you know, there were similar tragedies. And as he was having these chats with complete strangers, he started to feel better. Now, look, I'm a, I'm a believer in, in what Freud you know, coined the talking cure and not because therapists have some superpowers. And, and, and I know they are really as human as we are, but it's really because getting something out of us is the opposite of holding it in. And, and when you do that, when you let go, when you just say things and express yourself, 
you know, and you start to feel better. And, 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 you know, when, when people start sharing their experiences with you, you know, the result is you, you don't feel as alone in life, you know, that, that you're going through something alone and that there's some healing there. It was certainly he healing, um, for, for my driver. Now you might be asking yourself, <laughs> how did Mike go from talking about his kids not expressing themselves artistically anymore to the tragedy that uh, his Uber driver suffered last year. Well, the glue to all of this is uh, one word, and that's vulnerability. You know, I believe that when we put the brakes on our creativity, because the fear of rejection or criticism creeps into our lives, you know, so so it's better to not do something than than be potentially criticized for it. What we're doing is we're protecting ourselves from vulnerability. You know, because there is there is some psychological danger in vulnerability. Um, so it, it puts limits on us, in other words. And that Uber driver realized, though, that making himself vulnerable to strangers was an important part of his healing process. So if there's a lesson in all of this, it's, you know, let's not try to protect ourselves too much from the reactions of others. You know, let's, um, let's make ourselves vulnerable, whether that's through sharing our art you know, our music or our sadness. And by doing that, you know, maybe we can all lead fuller and better and more complete lives. Wow. Uh, that was, uh, that was big. And I, I bet Christina wasn't expecting me <laughs> to, to, to take her, uh, her little, um, exploration into vulnerability that way, but I did. And, uh, there's no turning uh, back now. I guess I could edit it out, but I won't because, uh, I feel strongly about it. <laughs> uh, one more thing before I roll the interview, uh, you know, Christina says in her chat that, that she likes to find stories to uncover that haven't been told before. And uh, that was the spirit that, that, you know, drove her to write uh, the book Orphan Train, as well as her latest book, The Exiles. And, and, you know, in a time when it seems like every story has been told and retold, I mean, how many times did they reboot Spider-Man? Um, you know, Christina's spirit of unearthing something new really is a breath of fresh air. But honestly, um, and I'll be honest with you because because that's what I do. Uh, honestly, you're better off hearing that story from her. So uh, how about this? Without further ado, here's my uh, fun and exciting and interesting chat with New York Times bestseller, Christina Baker Klein. Um, well, first of all, Mike, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. And this is my favorite kind of podcast where you get to hear the story behind the story and sort of learn about how people um, how people do the things they do, like all of those. How do you how do people have their jobs kind of things I'm fascinated with? Um, you know, I people always ask me when did you start writing or did you always know you wanted to be a writer? And I, my answer is just that all children are born creative. Every kid paints and dances and sings and draws and tells stories. And um, most people outgrow it and some people don't. And I think that's kind of the interesting question. Why, why do some people keep going and become painters or writers or musicians and other people stop along the way? And so in my case, 
I, I was born in England. My parents are Southern and we eventually moved to Maine. So I had a really unusual childhood. I was, we were back and forth to England for nine years. I have dual citizenship and my parents were really different from each other. My mom's great grandmother was the first woman to graduate from college in North Carolina. And my dad was the first person in his entire family to finish eighth grade, much less college. And he became a professor and they, you know, so I I lived in this funny family where my dad had education was entirely new. And yet he had gone on to become a history professor and loved it with the, I think with the pure love of someone who didn't grow up, you know, reading books. He had to really teach himself along the way. Whereas my mom grew up in a book laden household. So, you know, my children's books were a combination of English books, Southern books, and and then of course Maine books like E. B. White and um, and Robert McCloskey children's books that just lodged in my imagination. And now, as an adult, I split my time between New York City and Maine. Although since COVID, I've been in my Maine house since for eighteen yeah. months almost. Um, so I I I grew up the oldest of four girls. Um, I'm the only one who became a writer. My sisters are all creative in different ways, but um, I, my parents. I never thought I had anything in common with my dad, who's written many books, but they're history books and published by university presses mostly. Um, until I started writing fiction set in the past, and then I realized that I had learned from him and my research methods are really similar. My new book, The Exiles, um, which is set in England and Australia is a direct sort of outgrowth of my own father's real passions. So, so that's, I guess how I ended up where I am. Yeah. So I, I just have to, to go back to something you said earlier about kind of kids and outgrowing, um, creativity. And it's, it's interesting. I have, I have triplets, um, they are 19 years old and like on the, on the first floor of, of our house, it's just decorated with artwork that they did when they were in like grammar school, you know, they were, they were all part of, of the art club and, uh, like the, these paintings that, that, that we have of theirs are like, like little treasures, um, and I've seen as they've grown older, like, you know, my son, you know, kind of stopped with you know, artwork and he got into theater and then he, you know, as he got into college, he stopped that. My, you know, my one daughter was always singing and playing guitar and drawing and that's kind of gone by the wayside. And my my other daughter, um, you know, I think she was more forced, not forced into the the arts, but it just really wasn't her thing. She was an ice hockey player. Oh, that's Um, My husband was ice hockey. Yes. Yeah. But, but, but it is, it is, um, it is sad in a way to think of like the, this reverse Peter Panism that happens to, to kids as they grow older. And, and I don't know if we if we scare the creativity out of them or or if, if just like the process of growing up and becoming adults, it just kind of fades. But it is quite sad. I think there are a lot of factors. And um, one of them having three kids, boys, myself, um, one of them is that. I think you get self-conscious when you start realizing that you're being judged, right? So a lot of people shy away from that, which is completely understandable. And also when you're in the public eye and you write books or you sing or you paint, you're always up against critics, right? You're always up against people. Well, so this is related. First, there's the judging that can happen on an earlier scale before you 
are in the public. And you just sort of, I mean, for myself, I painted throughout high school. I loved it. I, I, there are all these canvases. And at some point I sort of realized I just wasn't talented enough. I got very self-conscious about it. And, um, and with, with writing, what I'll say happened to me, I think, is that I had some people along the way kind of encouraging me. There were plenty of people who didn't. Um, but I, I, I learned in my own head to sort of follow the yes is what I call it. Like I, you know, I had there, I, I, when I was in the fifth grade, I had a teacher, Mrs. Carey, and, um, she assigned us a creative writing exercise and on a, and we handed it in on Friday and on Monday morning, she came back with our paper, with our little stories. And she walked up and down the aisles. This is back in the day when they had aisles, I think. Now they're much more freeform. But, um, and she stopped in front of every desk and sort of chatted with each child, right? Each kid in the classroom, 20 kids or so. And when she came to me, God knows she probably said it to everyone. But when she came to me, she put my story down and she said, I liked your story very much. And in fact, I liked it so much that I read it out loud to my husband this weekend. And he liked it too. Wow. Now, she didn't say she loved my story. And she, my mind was blown because I didn't know she had a husband. I didn't know she had a life outside of the classroom. I could not even fathom that. But the idea that she had read my story out loud to someone else and they liked it, too, was enough to keep me going for the next decade, I swear. You know, just yeah. that tiny bit of encouragement. I always tell teachers that you never know what sparks someone. And oftentimes it's the slightest bit of encouragement that can really help. Right. But that encouragement I find anyway is, is the fuel that, that kind of keeps you going too. It really like is. I, I, yeah. I, I, I always think to myself, you know, I, you know, and I sometimes think it's, it's, it's to my detriment, but I feel like I've got like a need for validation, like for, for someone to, to read something or react to something I've done um, in order to to know whether or not it's good. Now I can think, hey, this is good. Or if I'm doing, I do stand up comedy, you know. And that, that's wow. what kind of what that's what kind of drove me to stand up was, you know, when I write something, it might take a year for someone to read it and and get get back to me on it. I mean, I'm talking reviewers or agents or whatever. But with stand up, like you know, immediately if something works, people are laughing. If something doesn't work everyone's quiet and you start sweating down your back. Yeah. I love reading about stand-up comedians because it's such a visceral and immediate response that you get. And I was listening to an interview, I think with maybe with Chris Rock, who was talking about new material that was sort of edgy and scary and that, you know, right away when you, when you present to a, you know, an audience kind of what they're catching, what they aren't and how they're reacting to it. And it isn't always what you thought it would be. And for myself as a writer, I don't know how you find, how, if the, this is the same for you, but I can think something's working and I put it aside and come back to it. And I realize I can see it differently later. So, which is sort of a scary thing because you can get into a, a, a sort of self-perpetuating black hole where you're always wanting to get better, but you're always then afraid to present to an audience or to a readership. And so, you know, I have friends who are way more talented writers than I am, but they get into a self-critical loop where they're really not willing to let something go. And I think that is a real problem and it's hard to overcome. And it's true. I mean, a lot of times we can't judge ourselves right away. It does take work. So I have learned that revision is so important for me, at least. I don't know what you find with your own app, no. but 
refining and refining and refining, um, but eventually being able to say, I have to make a leap and bring it out and see what happens. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's two things there. One, there, there's the validation you need to hear from other people that something's working or, or maybe not. But then there's the vulnerability required to present it to somebody and take advice if, you know, if, if, if it's warranted, you know, and, and take direction. So. I mean, that's, that's actually an interesting point. I had a student once who, in col- a college student who was um, in my creative writing class and he said, well, you know, I'm, I don't mean to brag, but I'm a, I'm a really good writer. This was when we were introducing ourselves and, uh, you know, I, I, my writing is I've worked on it for a long time, et cetera. And I said, that's great. What do you read? What are your favorite books? And he said, oh, I, I only read my own work. I don't really believe, I don't really want to sully my brain with other people's fiction. You know, I just really feel, and I thought, there you go. You know, this is, this is an example of someone who's, Who's never going to make the big time? Because we have to learn from the masters. I'm sure you, as a stand-up, are always studying other people. I would guess. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, listening, you know, studying, going to open mics and watching, you know, new people kind of get up and and try things. You know, it's it's so funny. Like a, a lot of a lot of comics, like when they're done with their time, you know, they're five or seven minutes or whatever, they'll they'll leave or they'll go to the bar and and hang out. But if you're not like listening to other people and getting fresh perspectives and just understanding what's working and what's not working in general, like what's the audience reacting to, you know, what, 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 you know, what, yeah. um, how somebody, you know, doing crowd work, like you're, you're missing out on a complete education. Right. And, you know, to your point about, about paying attention to other standups, for example, or in my case, reading a lot. I also think it's really useful to be friends with people in my world because we exchange information. We kind of learn from each other. Um, I really appreciate having a community of writing friends who I can count on to read my work and to sort of talk about the business with. Do you find that as well? Oh, it's it's like having a support system. Yeah, it is. You know, because it's such it's such a solitary activity. You know, if you work in an office, you've got, you got friends, you, you know, when I used to work in an office, I used to make the rounds, you know, just to say hi to this person, that person, when you're writing, it's solitary, It's you know, it's often just, Mm -hmm. it's you and your mind and this world you're creating, which is awesome, but it's solitary. And so having a network of people to, who are going through the same thing, shared experiences, so you don't feel as alone is, uh, is very important. Right. And also, you know, I have, I know people, I know writers who think of it as a sort of zero sum game where someone has success, someone else has right. failure or where, you know, there's this, a pie and they're not going to get as big a piece. My philosophy is if my friends are doing well, it only helps me. Like yeah. it feels, it makes it more possible. I mean, seeing yeah. people succeed makes me dream bigger and want more for my own writing and my, and to be more ambitious this morning, I was texting with a writing friend and she was just saying, I don't know if we can say this, but that, you know, you just have to go deep into the shit. You have to. Go yeah. Deep oh, yeah. Oh, you, you can swear all you want here. <laughs> OK. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that that she said, I'm just in it. I'm so deep in it right now. And it feels like I can't see my way out. But I, you know, for me to hear her say that and be able to say, 
listen, I was there. I know exactly how that feels is really important because you feel like you're alone yeah. when you're in a room doing it by yourself. It, yeah. It's amazing to be able to share that stuff with other people. What um so I know you write historical fiction, but what attracted you to to writing you know stories set in the past? Was it that that link with your dad, or was it was it something else, or a combination of things? Well, it was such an organic growth for me. I started um, writing novels that were contemporary, and I always thought that I would. In fact, I remember reading a novel by a famous contemporary writer who that she said in the past, and I thought, how bizarre! Like, why would she do that? She's got this great career. This seems like a killer, um, idea, stupid idea. And, uh, and also like, I don't want to read something made up a hundred years ago. I mean, I really, I really wasn't even a reader of historical fiction. I, and I, yeah, I also have a problem with the term historical fiction sometimes because I think it can be a female ghetto, ghetto, but that's another story. Um, I, what happened was I was writing novels set in the present day and I visited my husband's family in North Dakota, Minnesota. They're right on the border. And um, <clears throat> my mother-in-law had been had received this sort of centennial celebration of a small town she grew up in, in Jamestown, North Dakota. And in it was a newspaper article that featured her father. Um, and it was a story about the orphan trains. And her father had died a number of years ago, and he'd never mentioned the orphan trains. Um, but it was this big deal. And I thought, what is this story? I had never heard of it either. And my husband, who was a history major in college, had never heard of it. So I started researching it. And for eight years, I wrote other books. I wrote contemporary novels. I, wrote, I did a nonfiction book. And finally, I had been throwing ideas in a file. And I just thought, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. Someone else has not done it yet. So I jumped in and that novel, which sold like 4 million copies and sort of took off and changed my career, um, was a total leap of faith. Only a third of it was set in the past, actually. Two thirds was, is in the present day. But um, I realized that I really did like the research and also that I discovered that I really like telling little known stories that are important that people that are not part of our traditional history books. And so my next novel was about Andrew Wyeth and the subject of his most famous painting, which is called Christina's World. And I wrote the story of that woman and what her sort of quiet, solitary life was like, but also how she became this figure um, because she was made famous by that painting. And then that led me to a much more ambitious project was to write my new novel, The Exiles, which is set 100 years earlier in Australia in the mid-19th century. And it's about the convict women who transformed Australia and the Aboriginal people whose way of life was destroyed when British colonists landed on their shores. Yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, you know, not, not that, you know, America was, was uh, founded by, um, not founded, but, but um, populated by prisoners. Um, there's probably an, an overlap there in terms of what happened to indigenous peoples. Well, there's a huge uh, overlap in both ways and because we weren't founded as a penal colony, unlike Australia. But Britain sent 50,000 prisoners here before we declared independence and decided, like, no, we're not taking your refuse anymore. I mean, 50,000 is a lot. Yeah. There were a lot of convicts sent over to, the Ameri to America, not even the Americas. Um, and then Britain looked around and at first they thought, maybe the coast of Africa, uh, maybe we'll send our, our prisoners there. But 
they realized that there were the ports weren't quite they couldn't quite secure the ports, et cetera, et cetera. So they looked farther to halfway around the world. And that was how they settled on Australia, which had been populated by the Dutch and the French, who had no idea of turning it into a convict station, basically. I mean, it was so funny that the Dutch and the French were in Australia, and then Britain came in and put a flag down and said, sorry, we're this is our continent now. We're taking over. And we're bringing, by the way, we're bringing all our convicts. And so that was in the late 18th century, actually even a bit earlier. And by 1803, um, Australia was nine to one, men to women. And the British government realized they had a problem because they wanted to populate Australia, not just have all these prisoners die off. So they began importing poor women. They began sweeping them off the streets of England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, putting them on these often repurposed slaving ships because this supposedly Britain wasn't involved in the slave trade, even though they funded a lot of it. A lot yeah. of hypocrisy all around. Um, and then they sent all these women over. And in fact, they did populate Australia. And now today, um, Australia is 20% of Australians are descended from convicts. Wow. Wild, yeah. Well, what got you interested in writing a story that took place in Australia? So part of it was because my dad had become obsessed with Australia long ago, and he did um, an exchange with a professor in Melbourne, took the family over for a year, um, and he handed me a book. I was in college, so I couldn't go, but he handed me a book called The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes, which is amazing. It's an almost 700-page history of Australia. Robert Hughes is an incredibly charismatic writer. It's still in print today. It's a great book. I highly recommend it if you want to know like the real history of Australia. But um, but only one chapter in that enormous book was devoted to women and also to Aboriginal people, one chapter together. So I realized that was what interested me the most. And in my 20s, I went to Australia on a Rotary Foundation fellowship for six weeks, and I fell in love with the country. And there were all these reasons that I, I, I went to Australia. I taught in a women's prison I several times here in America. I mean, I had I taught twice in two different women's prisons. And um, I also wrote a book about mothers and daughters with my own mother. We interviewed 60 women. And I kind of realized that women's stories are not often told from their perspective. And so those three things kind of led me to this story. Wow. Well, so you are a uh, sort of a, you you do look for those stories that have not been told, you know, that, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, that's, I, um, I, I think that, you know, the history, not only of our country, but of the world is the history of conquerors, right? It's the history of generals and presidents and wars and treaties and the, and the wealthy and the robber barons, the aristocracy. Um, it's not the history of the poor, of women, of indigenous people. And traditionally, those stories have been left out of the history books. So it's such a joy to be able to discover. And there are lots of stories to discover, but there is such a joy to find them. And so the, the, the actual spark for the exiles was this piece, little column in the New York Times some years ago that was about these convict women and their children on, on, a, on a ship. And it was sort of, it was a parenting column. So it was sort of about how now we have it better than, you know, they had it back then. Even if things are tough today, they were worse then. And um, I just got this tingle. I realized this is an amazing story that I don't know enough about. And it would just be so fascinating to learn more. So I just took a deep dive into the research. Very cool. So you, yeah. you just you just mentioned uh, kind of 
um, teaching, you know, in a women's prison, I, I have to ask, like, what brought you there? And what insights into the human condition did you sort of take away from those experiences? So much of my work that I did there ends up in the exiles. I mean, the psychology of incarceration, of finding joy in the most, that's probably my biggest takeaway actually is I not only taught in a women's prison, I taught in Supermax. So this prison, um, Clinton Correctional Facility, or Edna Mahan actually is called in Clinton, New Jersey. It's the the only all-female women's prison in New Jersey, 700 inmates, 400 in maximum security, 300 in supermax. I think it's 300, might be 250. And, um, And so I was teaching there, which I did not bank on. I had to go through four levels of security to get in. There were armed guards with machine guns everywhere. And it was a really intense experience, very sobering. Um, And the women in my class, I taught a memoir class, had actually many of them, most of them had never written about their lives. They had never written about their lives. And uh, most of them had never had therapy either. So it was this crazy experience where they were so grateful to be able to share. I mean, it took a while to get beyond their defenses. But I said to them, we're in a safe place here. This is a, our classroom is a bubble. You know, you have to commit to being, to being willing not to tell, you know, to, to keep this space secret. And they, they did. And it ended up being a really powerful experience. And one of the things, as I said, perhaps the most important thing I learned is that even in this fairly bleak place, for a lot of these women, they were either never getting out or they had decades long sentences. They found joy. They found friendship. They, you know, a lot of them one of the things I talked about was how in the commissary they would get this bizarre different combinations of like probably remainder items from, you know, groceries, whatever it was. And they took joy in kind of creating recipes from those and figuring out, sharing tips on cooking. I mean, it was, it was, I tried to show on the convict ships what that experience of getting to know each other and even getting to trust each other was like. But, you know, it's also, I also learned a lot about the criminal justice system and how the poor even today are so much more likely to go to prison and how in my novel, The Exiles, I describe it and the British government described it as crimes of poverty. Back in the day, you could be thrown in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. There were no social programs, no safety net, et cetera. But even today, For example, a number of women ended up in trouble because of boyfriends, because of being abused over and over again, because of being in desperate situations. And a lot of times it snowballs when one thing happens and you end up, say, in a bank robbery or something. It's like just a really dire, um, dire conditions for people. And so I learned to have empathy and understanding about what why people end up in prison. Right. And, and I'm sure that comes through in, in your writing. Um, but what I'm curious about is like what you you personally took away from the experience of, of teaching in, in a supermax prison. Like what how how, how did that change you? I, I actually considered writing a memoir about it. Um, the, yeah. the road leading to the prison, believe it or not, is called Freedom Road. Wow. And my prison, my 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 memoir was going to be titled um you know, uh, beyond Freedom Road or on the way to Freedom Road, I, I, 
I just couldn't believe either the irony of that or maybe they considered that when you're leaving, I don't know. Um, it, it, it made me realize that freedom is precious, first of all. And second, that the slightest instant can change your life. There was a woman in there who looked like I, I lived in a suburban town, you know, my kids played soccer and she looked like your average soccer mom. And her story was that she had um, been drunk driving and killed a car of teenagers. I mean, wow. like on graduation day, it was some terrible story, um, but she had been stopped for drunk driving before she would clearly been an alcoholic, but she lived in the same community kind of community that I lived in. And I think seeing her in particular made me realize how that slippery slope can be quite steep and quite quick. You know, the descent can be quite quick and that, um, who am I to judge that? You know, uh, my, my task as a, as a teacher for them was to give them a a safe space to tell their stories and to try to, understand their own culpability. I mean, that's one of the stories in my own novel, The Exiles, is that on some level, you have to admit what you've done and come to peace with it and also ask forgiveness, um, whether it's of some higher power uh, of yourself, of the people you've hurt. Uh, And so I found that if you don't do that, and this is what there's one moment in my story where my character's in solitary confinement, and I had students in my class who were in solitary confinement and had missed class and then came back, where she my character realizes that she has to let go, she has to let go of bitterness in order to survive. And that was a huge lesson that I learned in the teaching in the prison is that these women had to learn to let go of their anger and bitterness about how they've been dealt a raw hand. And that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, just, just even, even outside of, you know, an incarceration situation, we all have to learn at some point in time to, to like shed those weights that we carry around on our shoulders, you know, that, that might be holding us back, whether that's bitterness, resentment, you know, forgiving ourselves for, for something we've done, or forgiving other people for for you know perceived wrongs that were done to us. There's there's something that's almost you talk about Freedom Road, but th- there's something that's almost freeing about being able to do that and having the it's almost finding the strength and 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 courage to being able to do that. It is. There's this phrase let God and let go and whatever God means to you. And and to me it's a bit metaphorical, meaning um, I see it as sort of relinquishing the stuff that's bottled up inside in whatever way that is for me in some ways god is in writing because and and i i that was how i felt teaching these women is that by putting things that terrified them that they were ashamed of that um you know that 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 they were angry about on the page they were able to let go of it in some way it was a really it was funny because i'm not a therapist one of my sisters is a psychoanalyst but um i it felt like a therapeutic process in some yeah. ways. Oh, it, it totally is. And that's a therapeutic technique. I yeah. mean, it just writing, writing something down. And, and I mean, I remember 
because that was that was uh, my field before I went into something else. But, um, you know, writing something down and then burning it as a cathartic process. Yeah, you know? that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. uh, and then burying it in the backyard and never thinking about it again. But, yeah, it's um, like you're able to to you're able to sort of relinquish if you can do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what do you hope uh, just going back uh, to the exiles? What do you hope readers um you know, we'll actually take away from, from the book, you know, from, from the story. What's, what's your, what's your hope there? Well, a couple of things. One is that I think it's just a riveting story, not my story. I hope my story is riveting, but, um, the story of how Australia became the country that it is and, uh, its origin story is so fascinating, so complex. Um, and the women who went in on these convict ships, this is my second point, And this is a big takeaway, actually. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the book that's har- it's a harrowing story in some ways, because you're thrust, you're taken, you know, you're swept off the streets, put in Newgate prison, stuck on a convict ship for four to six months. You end up in this country with seven foot tall creatures you've never even imagined, you know, imagine, think of these women who grew up in Glasgow and London and suddenly they're in this land with brightly colored birds, the size of dogs and, you know, these kangaroos hopping around. I mean, they just could not believe where they were, not to mention the scary, dangerous animals. Um, And, you know, the whole climate is different. The topography is different. I use the Tempest in the novel as a kind of parallel because it's like being thrust into a magic world, an island that no one could imagine. Um, So these women get there and they're in prison, their lives, it's tough, it's not easy. But my big takeaway of the whole story is that for these women who'd grown up in socially stratified Britain, if they got through it all and they got out of prison, they suddenly had an opportunity to reinvent themselves. And Australia is a land of great optimism. It is a land where these women came in and they became entrepreneurs. They got out of prison. They became entrepreneurs. They they bought pubs. They uh, they they you know went to college. They they got educated. They became teachers. They kind of took over. And um, there's a wonderful nonfiction book called The Tin Ticket that describes really what happened to, in that way. But in my novel, I give you at the end, I think, a real sense of how Australia was transformed. And it was it's such an it was such an exciting and optimistic story, even I think if this if the the way the women got there wasn't necessarily. And then the second thing, I, the third thing I would say, just the one last thing is um, I finished this novel. It came out during COVID at a time when, as you know, George Floyd had happened, the Black Lives Matter, people were taking to the streets, not only in America, but all over the world. And so, you know, it, it went from America, spread uh, from Minneapolis to the East Coast, the West Coast, to Britain, Germany, all over Europe, and Australia. And one of the things that I was fascinated to see is that um, Australia has a very complicated history, as do we with our indigenous people and, um, you know, the legacy of slavery. 
in some ways, the Aboriginal situation is a combination of those two things. And um, the Black Lives Matter movement took over Australia, too. And there's all kinds of attention being paid to the legacy of colonialism and of what happened to the Aboriginal people and what the British government did. And so what I see is that in my novel, even though it's not contemporary, you get a lot about how it became the country it is and where it's going today. Yeah. Wow. And do I understand that this has been optioned for um, some 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 form of screen? Yeah, whether that's a uh, series. Yeah. Um, the people who did Big Little Lies and Gone Girl and Wild and The Undoing, they're just wonderful. They have a new movie called The Dry, actually, that's based on an Australian novel by Jane, Jane Harper. But um, yeah, I'm executive producing along with some other real experts. And um, the production company is all female. They're half based in Sydney and half in LA. And they're, they're, they're moving ahead pretty quickly with it. So I'm hopeful that it will happen. Yeah. How, how's that experience different than, I mean, are, are you, I know you said you're executive producing, but are you, are you part of screenwriting at all? Or is that or, um, or are you more of a consultant for that? They have this A-list screenwriter and I'm leaving her alone until there's a draft. And then I hope, you know, to be working with her to edit it. I've given her lots of material. Um, yeah. And re- one really fun thing about doing a series that's different from doing a movie, because my novel Orphan Train has been in endless production as a movie. We've gone through three different scripts. We had Helen Mirren and all these A-list directors signed on. Then COVID happened and they may actually be pivoting to a series at this point. But what's different about a series and and, uh, a movie is that they can really follow all these storylines. So I have a character named Olive, for example, who kind of leaps off the page. She's a minor character, but a lot of people say, I want to know more about what happened to Olive because she's so entertaining. And I actually have written a whole lot more about her, but it's not in the book because I had to sort of cut back. So with a TV series, you can explore all those kinds of storylines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this is exciting. Uh, very exciting. Thank you, um, Mike. Where, I know, I'm sure, if, if not by, you know, um, um, well, I'm sure people are asking themselves, where can I buy The Exiles? Um, so where would you tell them, Christina Baker-Klein, where they should pick it up? Well, of course, your local independent is a great idea, but it's also the July cost cup. Costco buyer's pick this month, and it is the target book of the month um, for their book club pick, Um, and it's the book club girl book club pick. So there, I think you have a lot of options. No shortage of places to buy, but I love I love the idea of buying it at these small independent bookstores. Yeah, and yesterday uh, I had a big um, party to celebrate the paperback, and this is my new paperback cover, by the way. There it is. Look at that. and 45 independent bookstores co-sponsored the party. And it was so much fun. And I'm just such a huge supporter of indie bookstores and um, want to do everything I can to send people in their direction. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, hey, now. <laughs> that was a fun conversation. Although, I suppose uh, I am a bit biased. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to Christina, and as she says, you can pick up The Exiles wherever books are sold, but I have to say, if you're so inclined, please consider patronizing your local independent bookstore, because let's face it, 
small businesses were having a hard time before the pandemic brought on about, you know, by, by COVID-19. So consider showing them a little love. And if you must buy it online, and, and I get it, not everybody has a, a bookstore near them, um, you know, please consider shopping at bookshop.org where a portion of every sale goes to support a local bookstore. And I really have no idea how they do that. Uh, they must look up uh, your zip code or something and, and then show a little bit of love to uh, a store that is registered with them. Nevertheless, they have raised over $14 million for local bookstores, and I encourage you to check them out. Amazon gets enough of our money, right? Um, now, you might be wondering, uh, you might put your, your David Byrne hat on for a minute and say, uh, you know, you might ask yourself, hey, that was a great interview. <laughs> how do I get more of these Uncorking a Story episodes? Well, uh, you can search for Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcast, you know, whether that's Apple or Google or Spotify or, or wherever. And uh, while you're there uh, looking at all the past episodes, feel free to subscribe because that way you'll stay up to date with every single episode forthcoming for Uncorking a Story. And uh, please uh, rate and review us as well, because uh, ratings and reviews really help us get the word out to more and more people. And we want to share the joy. We want to share the joy that Uncorking a Story brings to everybody who listens. Now, if you want to be more daring, oh man, if you want to be more daring, like Indiana Jones, who I, whose name I invoked in the beginning of, of this episode, you can visit MikeCarlin.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I, because hey, why not confuse everybody? Now there, you'll see an archive of all past episodes of Uncorking a Story, but plus, you can find yourself uh, information on all of my eight novels. Yes, eight novels. I can't believe it myself. And, uh, you know, feel free to buy one. Feel free to buy one and, and doing so. By doing so, you'll be doing the world a great favor because you'll be helping me put uh, my triplets through college <laughs> and, uh, and have fewer student loans. Um, now, here's the thing. I know you've heard enough of a commercial from me. So I'm going to say for all the hardworking women, men, and dogs here at Uncorking Story, and yes, we do have two dogs on the payroll. This is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening. And until next time.